We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Hi, I'm Jerry Boyer. You're listening to Meeting of Minds podcast, and my guest today is my good friend Scott Shepard. He heads up the Free Enterprise Project at the National Public Policy Research Center, um, and this and is also um, somebody who is kind of a coordinator of everything that's going on in the center right uh, in terms of shareholders talking to companies and putting proposals on the ballots of companies in order to shape the debate, something conservatives basically have not, largely have not done uh, for several decades. Although I have to say Free Enterprise Project or the National Center has been there. Usually one person is one conservative in the meeting, and that's someone from uh, the National Center. Um, boy, but that sure has changed, hasn't it, Scott? It has, Jerry. And as you well know, you know we've got we're, we're not alone on the watchtower anymore, uh, fighting this fight. We're uh, we're supported by the the National uh, Legal and Policy Center. We're supported by David Banzen. We're supported by um, uh, Inspire Investing. We're supported by ADF. We've got a lot of groups now, and I think there are going to be more and more um, who are recognizing that shareholder the, the the shareholder work you've got to give the left credit shareholder work they've done for 30 or 40 years of bothering ceos who gave in and gave in and gave in to make them go away until there were permanent representatives of the left on their boards of directors amongst their executives who were there fighting every day and now they've got uh entire dei departments and um uh decarbonization departments so that they're the institutional structure we uh we're, we're decades behind them on a lot of that, but we've got a good crowd now. We uh, our, our share of the proposals for years and years, we, the Free Enterprise Project by itself, about 5% of the total proposals that were, were submitted. Now, uh, our collection, everybody who's submitting on our side, it's up to about 10% of a much larger total. I think the total pool uh, this past year was about 1,000. And we've caught the attention of the business, uh, the business media of corporations and of the other side, as you saw's annual uh, proxy preview, where previously they just ignored us and talked about how they were going to move corporations further left, started with this absolute diatribe by Andy Bayer, their president. I remember um, that. That it was pretty weird. Yeah. Well, he accused us, us of everything they're doing. He accused us of destroying capitalism. He dis- dis- uh, accused our side of censorship. Everything they're up to it was like reading uh, Pravda in 1983. You knew what the Kremlin was up to because it's what they uh, were accusing us of. <laughs> and that those opening remarks, we should talk about what that is. What does that mean? As you sow is the main coordination point for the left. Uh, they're the ESG clearinghouse. Um, although, interestingly, what I'm noting is they're moving so far to the left that the that the rest of the ESG movement is not quite necessarily keeping up. So I've noticed, for instance, the proxy services voting against, as you sow, fairly often now, which is fa- they they yeah. like. Go ahead. No, no, I was. I, I that's ab- that's absolutely right. But I think I I've gotten fairly cynical having done this for a few years now, and I wonder if that's not a strategy. They're not. Uh, as you so and its allies aren't specifically moving to the lunatic left so that uh, Glass-Lewis and um, and ISS can pose as somewhat more moderate, still supporting everything that would have come up five years ago, but given the excuse of being able to to oppose some things that are just death. Yeah, I, I don't think ISS is moving right, although they they did switch positions on um, the abortion proposals to divest from pro-life states, and they did switch positions uh, on this crazy diversified shareholder rule. 
which says that you you know you should vote for a company to do something which will hurt the returns of that company but might help the returns of the rest of the portfolio. So they've redefined shareholder centrism in a way that says, listen, Hormel, stop using antibiotics. Yes, you're probably going to be less profitable if you stop using antibiotics, but there's the possibility, WHO, a reliable source, uh, the World Health Organization, tells us that there's antibiotic resistance is going to happen and that that's going to be bad for healthcare systems and hospitals and health insurers. So even though it's profitable for you to use antibiotics, that'll hurt your, your investors. It'll hurt another part of their portfolio. So you have to be responsible for the returns of the entire portfolio rather than just your own company. And I was pleased to see the proxy service is saying, Mm-mm, no, that doesn't make any sense. So coordinated or not, I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe, but what I, what, one thing I am clear on is that the ideological groups like As You Sow are tilting left rapidly. Um, they're they're getting out ahead of a lot of people who may have been with them before. Whether it's a cynical explanation or not, they clearly are moving pretty hard left. Um, and they and 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 so they, they you know they did a presentation of their agenda for uh, for the year, and it was fascinating how much of it was an attack on conservatives and centrists. And the odd thing is, they seem to be making two arguments. One is, we are the future. We are inevitable, like Thanos, I guess. Uh, we are inevitable. We've already won. This debate was over a long time ago. And also, these heavily funded people on the far right are destroying our economy and, and destroying markets you know, by, by tearing down the ESG movement. And it's like, you know, choose a lane. I mean, either you've yeah. won and you're victorious and you're standing on our necks, in which case don't use the threat of us as a fundraising tactic, or this is really a competitive thing and, you know, it could go either way and quick, we need help. But to, to say both seems a little odd to me. Well, I mean, everything they say is a little odd in the ways we were, we were talking about earlier, including the fact that we get accused of being this well-funded, uh, well-organized group. They've got 30 years ahead of us and they've got Soros money, Arabella Capital money. Yeah. They've got all sorts of dark money going to them. Right. And yet for... for uh, about a year after the, the uh, business press, the Bloomberg types, started paying attention to the fact that we existed, I had to start, or sometime in every uh, interview, have the question, well, who are your funders? Are they dark money funders? Well, I, I, don't, I don't do our fundraising, but I sure wish if you knew about some dark money funders, you'd send them our yeah, way. Yeah, we could use some dark money funders. <laughs> we, we could really use a lot of that big fossil fuel money that they keep saying that <laughs> we have. I, mean, I don't have a fanning of it. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of it goes to the ESG groups, frankly, as as tribute money uh, and to the environmental groups. Um, So uh, and of course, I've asked, as you saw over and over again, every time they mention your funding, I say, that's a great question. What about your funding? I mean, the only reason we know about Soros is because Soros, I mean, he's living up to his ideal of an open society. I mean, he publishes in the open, the the Open Society Foundation does publish who they give money to. So we know you're getting Soros money. Who else are you getting? That's right. And they never answer that. That's why I don't get that question from the reporters anymore, because that was always my response. I'll look into this for you if you're guaranteeing an article where you're going to list all of their funders, and then you can list ours. And that, that right. just was no interest to them, whatever. And also, let's list the comparative size of the budgets. Yeah. How big yeah. is of the Free Enterprise Project um, and, say, the Alliance Defending Freedom's efforts in this degree, the corporate engagement? I mean, and that's pretty much the group there. At the National Law and Public Policy Center, pretty small group. Um, so combine them. That's pretty much the nonprofit coalition. I don't know if I'm leaving anybody out, but I don't think I'm leaving anybody big out who's actually doing proxies, proposals, who's actually doing what As You So does, and then compi- compare that to the other side. Um, and they're vastly bigger and b- vastly more well-funded. Well, I want to make sure to mention Steve Malloy has been doing this for years, but Steve Malloy is one guy with a website. Well, that's right? my point. They're, so he, so right. he's not awash in great sums of dark money. He's, a, right. he's a guy, you know, and there's Tom Strobar who's doing pro-life resolutions, but he's one guy doing, doing it essentially as a volunteer. Um, so uh, if we leave Steve Malloy out, 
we're not leaving out a lot of undisclosed money. Let <laughs> me put it that way. Right. Just, just a lot of solid, terrific effort. But yes, but those, that's not where the money's volunteer side is. work largely. Probably, <laughs> I mean, it's. I think a lot of the, a lot of our side is pro bono. Uh, I mean, I did this for like two years, uh, pro bono, and it's still not. Anyway, um, okay. So, uh, the, so you used to be that it was the Free Enterprise Project before you. Uh, that was largely our pal Justin Danhoff, uh, right. Dave Almasi too. I would see him, um, you know, some of these meetings, right? Um, and I think Steve Malloy also did some stuff um, with the the Free Enterprise Project, but largely it was Justin. He he was he was like that that one guy there. Uh, now and so that's five. That was five percent of proposals. Now conservatives are north of ten percent of proposals, and as you say, that's ten percent. So that's grow that doubled as a percent of a pie that also got considerably bigger. So, that, and even as you so says, the biggest c- category of proposal this year is what they call anti-ESG proposals. Okay. Right. That's right. So what We're, are... They used to call us conservatives, right? But the impl- implication of that is that they were liberals. And they can't admit that because right. they're just the future in their eyes. Everything they do is morally correct and, and nothing can be argued. It's just investing. It, I mean, right. it's just investing. I mean, doesn't every investor say, hey, you shouldn't do business in a pro-life state. That's bad for my returns. I mean, I, right. yeah, I, I remember back in college in the finance courses, they said, yeah, really, when you're looking at a business, ignore the, ignore the, the, um, the multiples, ignore the profit, ignore net income. What you really want to know is, are they doing socially approved things? I mean, that's what everybody, of course, that's just investing. That's not political. Well, and Gary, do you see that, that being pulled yet again just in the last week or a couple of weeks ago, maybe? Larry Fink came out and he accidentally said he was in sh- ashamed to be involved in the ESG debate and then took that back. But he said, we're not going to talk about ESG anymore. We're going to talk about conscious capitalism and, and conscientious capitalism. But the reason was because, as we've pointed out to him and to his face before, Uh, He's got in his portfolio ESG denominated, ESG labeled uh, assets and regular labeled assets. But he's bragged constantly about using all nine trillion dollars of other people's money to force companies to adopt behaviors that are ESG aligned. That that violates all the disclosure rules you can imagine. Yes. And so he's going to he's gone to conscious, conscientious capitalism because now he feels like if he says whatever he's doing is conscientious, nobody can disagree with him. I don't know how bright he is. <laughs> oh, I, I think he's bright in that certain way that it takes to become the CEO of a gigantic app. No. There's a certain That's skill set that of rising to the top of an organization. And this is a point that I think our side has tried to make and that I made, uh, I've tried to make, like I said, with the CEO of AT&T, which is just because you have the skill set of building a large company or just because you have the skill set of rising through a large company does not mean you have the skill set of knowing what's good public policy. Yeah. That doesn't yeah, transfer that's, over. That's a completely that's different right. thing. And he's obviously a very bright man. What I should say is I don't think he's very self-aware. Yes. I don't think he has any idea how these things land on the public and how every almost every time he speaks, he builds more trouble for them. Yes. I, see, I think that's right. So... For a lot of these people, they're CEOs, and CEOs do not usually hear a crossword from the people that they're dealing with, and the people that they're dealing with are almost always employees, right? So they're not – no one's saying no, wrong, bad, right? And then they go out into the public sphere thinking that they're they're just magic. They're a superhero. Everyone loves all their ideas. (laughs) And then they go out there and say, well, you know, this capitalism thing, this shareholder capitalism thing, eh, that's not really the way it works. It really should be stakeholders. You know, yeah, the shareholders are there, but, you know, there's penguins, too. Penguins count. You know, penguins are one it's of our right. constituencies um, and the planet and the unions and um, and uh, socially conscious people. And, you know, that's all they're all we work for all of them and that's not, right. not and not be able to anticipate how shareholders who thought that they really just work for shareholders, how they would take that revelation that you're just hey, he's not he's really not that into you. You know, you're not all that special. You know, well, uh, especially when you point out to them, I mean, that that stakeholder capitalism ruse lasted for about four minutes because once you, they, you saw the list of all the stakeholders that they were including, it was clients and it was the environment, it was communities, it was everyone and everything. And so their their claim was, we're going to make corporations work for all stakeholders. Oh, 
you're going to pick things that everyone and everything agrees about and it advances the futures of everyone and everything? Or are you just going to point at the stakeholders who already have your personal policy preferences right. and you're going to you're going to use them as your excuse? And of course, within minutes, it was clear that that was so. right. If you take someone who has one boss and you give them a dozen bosses and the discretion as to which boss they're answering to at any given time, then yep. they don't have a boss anymore. That's right. And, that's and that was the whole goal. I mean, Jamie Dimon got the board, uh, the business roundtable, which, by the way, is just a luncheon club for CEOs who can afford their own lunches. They don't have the power to change the law. But he got them to redefine the purpose of the American corporation because Jamie Dimon quite, like, quite likes uh, being able to do anything he'd like, he, he wants to do. Yeah. And he thought that was going to work out for him uh, fairly nicely. Yeah, it hasn't. I'm here. I hear rumors about running for president. My friend Charlie Gasparino says he's probably running for president. Well, okay. Do not count for, uh, uh, for on any votes from religious people after the debanking of Sam Brownback and the complete lack of explanation and transparency about that. Which brings me to proposals where conservatives are setting the agenda because historically, um, the left sets the agenda through shareholder proposals, and then the right ignores it. Or sometimes votes against it. But what's happening is the right and the center right, um, and even the center to some degree, is starting to drive the agenda. So you track this. I mean, you've got a spreadsheet with a database, and here's what the people who are skeptical about stakeholder capitalism and in favor of shareholder capitalism, here's what they did this year. I should say we just came out of the uh, season for – for shareholder voting. Yes, there's shareholder voting all year round, but there's a season where it's concentrated, which ended a couple of weeks ago. So what have we been doing? Well, as, as we started the top of the program talking about, we had lots of allies on the Watchtower with us. It was exciting. Well, I mean, a small, a small but growing uh, 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 cadre. And what we saw this year was, first of all, more reach from the center right than we've ever had before. We had um, environmental proposals, but not environmental proposals taking the, uh, the climate catastrophist model, but asking companies, look, you've signed up for all of these uh, net zero 2050 or net zero 2035 initiatives. Have you looked at any of the risks associated with that? Have you looked at all the people who are pushing that? Just assume that stranded asset theory is right, because every company is going to force com- uh, their countries to decarbonize. It's obviously not true. China makes it untrue. India makes it untrue. Even Germany this past year made that made that a ridiculous um, uh, a ridiculous premise. So, can you look at those premises? You've uh, you've got uh, so those that- those were the two uh, Bonson proposals, Exxon and Chevron. He had two proposals like that. And, That's right. Uh, and did any, Exxon, did any- Chevron, General Electric, um, Pepsi? I think we had a number of. There was a number of them across the coalition. I see. So there was a decarbonization risk with a GE and a Pepsi. Yep. Got it. Yep. All right. Yep. So, and I think we'll see more of those across our coalition this year. We had proposals. Uh, you're talking about uh, the way that Senator Ambassador Governor Brownback. By the way, the most of- I, 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 let me say something about those proposals. I'm going to whisper yep. it. Okay. Texas voted against them. Yes. <laughs> I'll bet that Florida and Ohio voted against Florida them too. Florida voted against them. Yes. Um, yeah. So we got to connect those pension assets with the things that the that the people in, you know who uh, live in those states and are the governors of those states. I don't mean just technically the the governor, but those who govern the states with what they actually believe. Well, you know, Jerry, we put out. It's not just a spreadsheet we have. Yeah, we put out a, a glossy publication every spring, given all of our recommendations and why they are uh, conducive to uh, consistent with fiduciary duty. Mm-hmm. And we, we tell the tell you the ones to oppose. I can't quite understand why this hasn't filtered down to the pension fund managers that we're already writing them a cheat sheet. But uh, but we'd like that to happen because the system <laughs> is arcane and complex and hard to use. I mean, it's not designed to be easy. I'm not letting anyone off the hook. Um but if, you, if we want to know why, it's because they, uh, in many cases, they've just outsourced that to an advisor, uh, to a fund, or even when they own directly, they've, they've outsourced that 
to a, um, a proxy advisor and they don't know that it's coming up and they don't even necessarily know how to vote them. So, you yep. know. I think all of that operationalizing trend, I, this is the challenge. I mean, that's yeah, that's kind of what we do. But um, I think that's why it happens. I think there's another problem, which isn't. I don't mean this in the uh, in the evil deep state sense that when people are talking about the federal government, but even at the state level, a problem that centrists and conservatives are always going to run up against is that the average person who wants to uh, who wants to uh, a job in government is motivated in part because of the desire to run other people's lives. They think that government is a is a solution to problems and that they have more insight than the people they want to tell what to do. Yes. And so by definition, those people lean left. And so even if they're relatively uh, desirous of doing an objectively good job, you have to get over the the, the inertia of their initial understanding of the world. And I think that's also something that's taking place in the private sector in the sense that the people who are drawn to proxy world, okay, so the people who join a DEI department in a company, who join an ESG department in a company, uh, who join the sustainability department in a company, the person who's, when someone says, hey, we need to send someone to ISS or we need to send someone to Glass-Lewis for a focus group committee to help form the policies, you know, the CI, the the chief investment officer, or the CFO doesn't say send me, right? Right. The sustainability officer or the stewardship officer says send me. So there's a self selection that you're talking about in government, but there's also self selection even in the private sector. In that, really big companies almost become like governments, and the people who want to form proxy policies are the people who probably shouldn't be forming proxy policies. Or at the very least, there should be a counterbalance. I'm not saying that no liberal person should show up for this. I'm just saying it shouldn't be 100, maybe 50-50, you know, or let's make it proportional. They like they like demographic proportionality. So if the country's 55% conservative, 55% of the people yeah. who are determining policy should be conservative. So there are structural things which pull the whole system towards ideological as opposed to genuinely financial considerations. Yeah, well, and that, that getting back to your earlier question about proposals from last year and what we expect from right. this year, right. one of the things that our shareholder engagement that we've discovered is that you know a lot of companies, the, the riot summer of 2020 and everyone uh, knelt to give their fidelity to this new concept of equity. A lot of companies are just blatantly violating the law um, in in uh, uh, in supporting equity policies that mean discrimination against the non-diverse in illegal ways, and in doing so, have relied on the guidance of two law firms, uh, Wilmer Hale and Covington and Burling. And Covington and Burling's DEI section is run by Eric Holder, notably objective, nonpartisan actor, Attorney General under Bar- Barack Obama, uh, uh, Eric Holder. And so one of the things we've been having to explain to companies is you violate your fiduciary duty if you know you've got a controversial problem and the only advice you seek is from partisans. Hmm. You have to have the other voice. You have to have the other voice in your stewardship groups. You have to have the other voice in your DEI groups. You have to have the other voice in your legal groups. And I think in some places that that message is starting to get across because they're increasingly aware that they might be building themselves a lot of legal liability with this. I mean, there, there are living Republican attorneys general. Right. I mean, they're not all dead. I mean, we're, we're, not, we're not going back to, we don't have to go back to Nixon years or something. There are people who were attorney, uh, the attorney general of the United States in the Trump administration and in the Bush administration and even in the Bush administration before that. I mean, there's even some rig. Um, so, I mean, there are people available who have attorney general level experience who are Republicans. Why shouldn't they be consulted? And we've got all sorts of there A series of state attorneys general just sent um, some of the larger corporations a warning letter reminding these companies that states have civil rights laws, too. Hmm. And states have the power to investigate and the empower. They didn't say this, but the power to jail people who who combine to deny American civil rights like like, say, uh, Larry Fink has been bragging about doing for so many years. I didn't read that letter. Is that another Daniel Cameron letter or who who was the main signer of that of that one? 
I apologize. I can't remember whose name it came out under. It might have been Cameron. Cameron's been on fire. He's oh, terrific. Oh, the guy's great. Yes, he wrote the J.P. Morgan Chase and, um, you know, on the Viewpoint Diversity. Um, okay, and so there's another category. We talked about decarbonization risk proposals that yeah. have come out. Uh, we also have proposals. There's um, And there's there's more than one flavor. So let's talk about sort of the civil rights Viewpoint Diversity, like the J.P. Morgan PayPal. Um, That's right. Yeah. So we have the ones that are, are more more strictly um, federal civil rights that, that ask companies, while you're doing all this equity-based discrimination, how about you do a report to make sure that you're not violating uh, the, the the legally protected civil rights of the non-diverse? But then we have a another category, um, and we, we were talking about Brownback, uh, Senator Brownback and J.P. Okay, Morgan so let me, stop you, let me stop you on that first one. That's okay. important. And it's more important now after the Harvard ruling from the Supreme Court, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think you worked on those. That was maybe one of your specialties. And even mentioned in one of your proposals the pending court case. Um, yeah. You know, uh, so obviously, I mean, they were able to write that off as, oh, that's not a risk. Well, it's, clearly it's a it's a risk now. So yeah. I call those, like in the little Boyer research proxy policy, those I call those reverse discrimination proposals. Yeah. You know, um, because you're looking at the risk of reverse discrimination. And it's so odd. I noticed this from one of the proxy services. You know, they said, well, you know, um, basically the companies have a, you know, have, have a robust, you know, anti-discrimination policy already in place. So they don't need to do this. And, you know, I, I've asked them, wait, if, a co- if you ask a company, are you discriminating on race or gender? And they said, we're not believe us right you wouldn't take their word for it but when right. you but when someone says are you reverse discriminating we're not oh they said they weren't didn't you yeah. hear them <laughs> they've they've dis- they've disclosed that they don't um so it's really kind of amazing the inconsistency here uh, i mean any i mean maybe maybe it's a good idea to support um, racial equity audits that look at discrimination against disadvantaged groups. Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's a bad idea. Maybe it's a good idea to look at reverse discrimination. Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's a bad idea. But my point is, it's a bad idea to be one one direction with one of them and the other direction with the other. That That's can't right. be right. So you, you, might, you might just say, listen, stay out of it. The disclosure is too damaging to the reputation. Or you might say, get into it. But to say, the discrimination liberals like we want disclosure and the discrimination the conservatives are, um, are opposed to, we don't want to hear anything about that. That, that yeah. can't be the right answer. Well, I mean, it's like when uh, when Fink and uh, Ron O'Hanley at State Street and these clowns say that um, climate risk is a financial risk. OK, but if we're going to draw all financial risks at that level, you have to draw all relevant financial risks at that level. You have to include the risk of decarbonizing before it's technologically and economically feasible so right. that companies will run out of energy right. or will have to double buy energy because they've gotten the stuff that only works in the daytime and they still need the uh, the petroleum products at night. Right. So right. Uh, it's, it's that's um, bias and political thinking and self-dealing to to pick only the to call as financial risk, the, only the ones that fit your personal policy preferences the same way as just demanding that companies do your politics. Yes, yes. By the way, I, when is someone going to do the financial risk of, um, you know, uh, urban uh, property that adjoins uh, uh, the ocean? I mean, when are we when are we going to do Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Manhattan as the as the greatest financial risk zones for global warming? I mean, if global warming is real and it's anthropomorphic, anthropogenic, I don't know, maybe it's anthropomorphic, too. It's Gaia. Um, she's mad. Uh, but it's, that's, it's, it's, that's always what it boils down to is Gaia is angry. Gaia is angry. Yeah. She's going to burn you yeah. up. So, But let's go back to anthropogenic. So, all right, it's happening and the water's going to rise. Well, Oklahoma is going to be the last hit in the Great Flood. <laughs> you know, Utah's not not going to get flooded first. Who is it? Portlandia. You know, all these wonderful liberal hipster hangouts are going to be underwater. So if we're really taking this seriously, we should be massively divesting 
from companies that are doing business or have real estate holdings or workforce holdings in coastal cities. Well, I couldn't agree more, but and as, so, that's related to another um, uh, type of proposal that came up this year. Um, we asked Starbucks and, and some other groups had had similar ones. Um, you know, you've been and Starbucks is a great example of this. You've been supporting left wing proposals, including defunding the police, including decarceration, including all of that for for years and years now. Now you're having to shut urban stores and take the the um, tables out of other urban stores. Um, because you've you've supported policies that make these places war zones. How about you do a report looking at whether the social positions you needlessly adopt are hurting the bottom line? Yeah, I saw those. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Okay, so we we you, we did reverse discrimination. That's one category that's sort of diversity. Uh, there are other categories you were going on to tell us about. That's right. The the other one, and this is most this is desperately important at J.P. Morgan. Remember, J.P. Morgan's a too-big-to-fail bank. In the end, uh, Jamie Dimon gets to, to keep his winnings if they have a good year. If they have a bad year, um, we taxpayers of all kinds, not just left-wingers, have to back him up. And he gets the special privilege of getting to amp his his uh, bonus and uh, J.P. Morgan's earnings by getting to be, buy banks, like, uh, like First Republic, where they made a couple of extra billion dollars at, at deep discounts. Right. They buy troubled right. banks. Right. Yeah, that's right. So if they have all those privileges, these too big to fail banks, at the very least, they they can't be allowed to discriminate on the basis of a viewpoint. And yet J.P. Morgan's been caught again and again, discriminating on the basis of viewpoint. It has a it, it did it against uh, uh, Senator Brownback's religious liberties organization. Mm-hmm. It won't. Ex- it lied five or six different times about what it was doing. It's now stonewalling. It, um, it it gets a 100% score on the Human Rights Campaigns Index, which is an organization that once fought for gay marriage. Whatever you think about gay marriage, it fought for that and said the whole time, that's it. This isn't going to change uh, sexual relations. This isn't going to change human relations. This marriage doesn't change anybody else's marriage. And right. then immediately, as soon as they won it, started pushing for trans extremism and everything that we've seen and, blow up. And bake the cake or lose your business. That's right. Right. Or That's build right. the website and, or lose your business. Right. Yeah. And they have a, 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 a corporate equality index, they call it. And JP Morgan always gets a perfect score. And in order to get a perfect score in that corporate equality index, you have to spend shareholder assets to take the hard left side in these astonishing culture wars. In the hardest left side about uh, 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 biological boys taking over girls and women's sports all the way up and down the line. And so um, J.P. Morgan, uh, and while they get that perfect score, they've refused to participate in a viewpoint diversity index um, that, that ADF and others have generated in recent years that, uh, that just asked them to, to be responsive about the ways in which they discriminate uh, on the basis of viewpoint. You mean so- the viewpoint diversity index that they never got or the viewpoint diversity index that they said is not consistent with their values. Um, I sent it to them as as long ago as last December, and we kept resending it to them. And yet they've said all along uh, they didn't get it or it's not consistent with their values. They haven't had time to review it or it's gone to the wrong person. And I'll tell you, uh, Jerry, I've been trying all summer to get a meeting with with our contact over there, yes. and she she blanked me all spring. And fair enough, it was proxy season, but then got got in touch with her right afterward. And sure enough, she well, gosh, we'd sure like to have a meeting, but I just can't get it on the calendar. So, you know, uh, so in, in long answer to your question, there was a, a terrific proposal, David Banzen at uh, at J P Morgan asking. Um, the company to do a report about this uh, viewpoint discrimination, finally be honest with shareholders and with the public, and at least consider adopting the, the viewpoint diversity index while it, uh, while it fills out this hard left HRC index. And I think that was a, that was, you know, our right of center proposals don't get a lot of support because we don't get ISS, we don't get Glass-Lewis, we don't get BlackRock, we don't get straight State Street, we don't get Vanguard to support them. But I think that one made a tremendously big deal in changing the conversation about um, J.P. Morgan and potentially 
uh, having a, if he really is going to run for president, having a significant role in his attempt to do that. Yeah. All right. Um, and I think there's kind of another category in this zone, um, what what you call non-pecuniary uh, factors, you know, business decisions. I don't know if it was in the same taxonomy, but it's kind of in that same zone. Proposals that challenge companies that seem to be making business decisions for non-business reasons. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, and I, I think I can break this down two ways. I, I mean, we don't have a complicated taxonomy for this, so if they fit in different boxes, but but one of these types is is asking companies, um, wow, you've really gotten out on a limb, say supporting hard left abortion positions or spending taxpayer or spending uh, shareholder money to fly. To, and this is true in a couple of companies. If you if you didn't like the abortion policy in the state you were living in and working in because it was too restrictive, you could move to a less restrictive state. You couldn't move in the other direction. That policy was only a one way ratchet and you couldn't move for any other political. And so we ask companies and, and others in our in, in the coalition ask companies to um, to analyze what they're up to, to make sure that that getting involved in these things was consonant with their fiduciary duty or that uh, taking the climate catastrophist position. We were talking about some of these before is consonant with their fiduciary duty um, or. Uh, well, there's another category, but that slipped my mind. So that's that's generally. Well, I, 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 I think there's the, a non-pecuniary, the abortion divestment thing. Right. Um, which I think is important. By the way, Duolingo, Pittsburgh Corporation, the CEO shortly after the Dobbs decision said, if Pennsylvania restricts abortion access, we're moving our headquarters. What? <laughs> what? Your headquarters was here for abortion policy? Right. <laughs> I mean, you, you are. I mean, it was obviously just hamming it up for the media. Yeah. But think about how incredibly irresponsible that is. I mean, even if pro-life policies are bad, I don't think they are, but even if they're bad and even if they're bad for business, it can't be that having your headquarters in Pennsylvania is so could go either way. And it's just this tiny little thing. Yeah, it was abortion, doesn't it? Yeah, there's property rights, there's taxes, there's regulations, there's that everyone owns homes. I mean, this is our, this is the headquarters. People own homes. They have families because they didn't all get abortions, apparently. They're they're ensconced here. They've lived here. You know, they know the, you know, they know the shortcuts. Their lives are here. But no, we're all going to pull up stakes and move to, I don't know, Vermont or something over this one issue it it is ludicrously, buffoonishly, uh, uh, irresponsible to actually yeah. do it. Now it was never going to happen, but it's it's that, that is such a child. Oh, I don't like that. I'm moving. Right. I mean, that, it must have been a pretty bad decision to be here in the first place. If that's enough to get you to now, of course, I've run the numbers. Um, the there's a population flow of people from pro-abortion states to pro-life states. So if the concern is that, well, we're going to have trouble with the workforce because women are going to, oh, no, they're going to drop out and have a baby, you know, and watch the baby for six months or a year. And we're going to lose, you know, that year of them as a worker. Well, okay, I I just want to just let's just be clear. If Texas is growing like mad and New York, as one tax consultant said, you know, my clients are leaving New York and northern and northern New Jersey like like it's on fire. So yep. so if you're worried about worker shortages, get out of San Francisco, get out of Manhattan, get out of New York, get out of Illinois and get get thee to Texas, South Carolina, get, get south to the pro-life states. Um, but even if even if you look at the, like the number of people like Texas, there were 10,000 fewer abortions. OK, you look at the size of the Texas workforce. The, um, and th- those 10,000 women who stayed home to watch babies because, you know, they, they didn't get the abortion, we're, we're, we're out there to four or five decimal places in terms of, I think I calculated, if you add up all 19 states that have some kind of restrictions on abortion uh, and the net number of women who had babies that wouldn't have, basically, if you've got 10,000 employees in a state, you lost one woman for a year. Right. <laughs> One out of 10,000 is the rough order of magnitude. How right. how can people, 
how can people take this seriously? And it's, they're not stupid. You know, uh, they, I mean, these people, they have Ivy League degrees, but ideology, I guess, blinds you. Um, well, or there, there or it's some... manipulation and they don't even really, really think about the truth. They just think, sure, that'll work. Let's make it a business issue somehow. Well, well, I think I think it's a little from column A and a little from column B. There are organizations that write studies that are obviously flawed, that are gibberish, but that they can say stand for the proposition that if you restrict abortion at any point along the line, that that loses a company. It's nonsense. It's terrible work. But but then there's something somebody can cite to. But I think with a lot of these companies as well, uh, there's the other side just isn't represented or or is represented, but those people are afraid to speak because we've talked to companies that have never even said, well, you know, if we don't support abortion maximalism, we're going to lose clients who support abortion maximalism. I said, yeah, but if you support abortion maximalism, you're going to lose clients who who don't support abortion. Did you did you even factor that into your consideration? No, because they don't know people who are pro-life. That's right. That's right. They, they, they've heard about us like we're some exotic puma in the jungle or something like that. We're some weird creature that they hear exists and they've seen documentaries about us, but they don't actually know any of us. Um, and so they don't understand that on balance, I mean, I know there's a variation of opinions between strong pro-life to strong pro-abortion and all these, but on balance, the culture is shifting more pro-life and the, and, and the country is, I, I, you know, late-term abortions, et cetera. I mean, pretty close. There are more people who support something like heartbeat bills than oppose it when it's described yeah. in detail. And that's largely what we're talking about, something like abortion after a heartbeat. Mo- a, a plurality of people think there shouldn't be an abortion after a detectable heartbeat. So you're not, you're not going with the majority when you say we're going to get out of Georgia because they passed a heartbeat bill. And by the way, you're also not going with the demographic shift. Georgia is growing. Anyone who drives in Georgia knows or tries to knows that Georgia is growing. You know, you, you, uh, these pro-life laws are not shrinking your workforce. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And, you know, along with these fake studies, you have to consider that uh, with a lot of these social issues, you can get any polling result you want, depending on how you how you form the question, right? Because if it's just, are you pro-life or pro-choice? Well, that doesn't describe probably 60% of Americans, because as you say, they're somewhere in the, in the, in the middle. And so that doesn't, it do, it's not responsive to anything, but... Right. But and a lot of these, a lot of these pro-abortion proposals in their supporting statements say a majority of people oppose the uh, overturn of Roe versus Wade. Well, guess what? A pretty large proportion of people thought that overturning Roe versus Wade meant that abortion would be outlawed completely in every state in the union. They didn't understand that that sent it back to the state level. So, yep. so, so going back to, you know, Duolingo. Okay. So you can't get an abortion in Pennsylvania. Guess what? Right up there is a thing called New York. Right. <laughs> just take you just take I-79 up to New York. It's a pretty drive. May, you know, I mean, it's not so pretty what you're going up there to do, but it's a no. pretty drive and you can get you can get to New York in about I don't know, two and a half hours. Uh and um so it's a day off to get your abortion. Uh yep. I don't really think you need to move your corporate headquarters to make this <laughs> Healthcare option available. Okay, so um, I guess another non-pecuniary is when business decisions are made, like cancellation with suppliers or I, like one category. We didn't succeed in getting this one, but it's probably in your database someplace. Like a company like MetLife saying, "Well, you you know you you can't buy group insurance NRA, uh, or we're not going to have gun manufacturers in our investment portfolio." Uh, even though they might be a good return on investment, so that's a not that's a non pecuniary non, you know it's Latin. Sorry, folks. Uh, non money reason to make a decision for an institution, a corporation whose existence is about money. Well, and Jerry, that, that's an interesting category because, as you say, uh, all across our, um, our our coalition, we didn't get those proposals on the ballot this year. purely because of SEC staff bias. For instance, there was a proposal from one of our groups that that asked American Express to look into its 
um, tracking gun store purchases and then coordinating with the government in ways that might violate the Second Amendment. But there was a left wing proposal that asked some other company to look at, to, to track gun store purchases because of and it didn't even make any sense. The fear of ghost guns. Right. Ghost and guns. so the yes. left wing one got past the SEC staff. Uh, ours didn't. And so that we see that with uh, viewpoint non-discrimination proposals. We see that with um, censorship by social media organization proposals. Uh, they, they've got a, a category for matters of significant public policy. And it turns out that significant public and social policy means whatever MSNBC is uh, in favor of and opposed to anything that, Jerry, you and I might might uh, might might uh, favor. And so. Uh, I'm glad to let you know that we're suing the SEC about that. Um, we're suing for bias. We're suing that their process is arbitrary and capricious. We're uh, suing on the grounds that uh, the whole system of review by the federal government is not um, permitted by either the Securities Exchange Act, under which the SEC works, or the First Amendment. And so, you know, I think, and there was just quizzing yesterday by the House, uh, the House uh, Financial Services Committee, of the SEC, the, the the guy in charge of this at the SEC about this, and he couldn't come up with any neutral explanations for how they decide what's a significant public policy issue. So I'm hoping that between the House's oversight and our lawsuit and just our coalitions pushing harder on that door, we're going to see different results this year. Well, I think if the SEC doesn't, you know, get a thumb off the scale and start to rule justly, they're going to lose this authority altogether because it's shaky. I mean, it's pretty yeah. legally shaky that they can say this shareholder gets to put something on the ballot and this shareholder doesn't. And it's all based on whether a staff member thinks it's a matter of significant social policy. And I don't believe there's any explicit congressional granting of this authority uh, to the SEC. It's in that zone of, you know, the Chevron rule, right, where. Uh, Congress might create an institution and give it a broad mandate, and then the institution starts inventing powers, right? Um, And, you know, the courts have been moving in the direction of less inventing of powers by administrative agencies than they've been taking so far. That maybe you can invent a power on sort of a non-trivial matter, but if it's a matter of of great import, or I forget the consideration, I forget the exact language, you got to go back to Congress, and yeah. say Congress the is, questions doctrine or the important questions doctrine, important questions doctrine. And I think they're about this far from overturning Chevron. I think that uh, 40 years ago, it was a mistake. Now, Antonin Scalia wrote this opinion, but he wrote it when Ronald Reagan was in office. I don't think he was thinking through to the day after next. But but um, what the Chevron decision does is gives the bank robber the key to the to the safe. Because it allows, it makes courts courts defer to agencies when they define how big their authority. Mm-hmm. And of course, as we were talking about earlier, people who go into government, people who run agencies, necessarily think, "Wow, I I really should have this extra authority because what I do is good and valuable." And people should think that what they do is good and valuable, right? But that makes them the wrong people to decide the limits of their own authority. Right. And so I think that I think that certainly this administration and Gary Gensler at the SEC in particular seems to be trying as hard as humanly possible to demonstrate that they shouldn't be the the uh, determiners of their own authority. And I think uh, I think Chevron, Knockwood, may well fall fairly soon. And at that point, this stuff all might go back to the states. The state, the, you know, the the, the state of so Delaware largely yeah. might be determining what goes on proxies or not. Um, all right, so that's another category. Um, are there any other categories of proposals from our side that we saw this year that are coming to mind? Oh, let's see. We have Why well, I have one charitable contribution disclosure. That's right. That's right. We've been. That's an interesting area too because both sides have asked for that uh, over the years. Um, now that most of the charitable contributions, especially after twenty twenty, go to left wing organizations, the left doesn't want charitable contributions anymore. And the SEC staff was fine with it, even if it focused on specific types of giving when it was from the left. They exclude ours on the grounds if they if they mention specific types types of giving. So that's another another area of SEC bias. But 
But I think that those are going to because Wait, ours, such... are, ours are being excluded because we mentioned specific types of giving. Is that what's was that where we're getting stuck? Yeah. Yeah. We had we had some after 2020. We had some that, that we pointed out. BLM, you know, maybe yeah. not, not a terrific organization. Maybe we should stop. But maybe they should think before, you know, although the, the resolution was written neutral. We mentioned BLM in the in the, uh, in the supporting statement. And that was the ground on which they tossed our. So if we don't, I, um, there's one I worked on that got thrown out um, under the uh, idea that they substantially perform it. Uh, that was um, Merck because um, they disclose charitable contributions, but they don't disclose the charitable contributions that are part of their matching program. Even yeah. even the corporate charitable contributions that are part of right. it. So they said, look, we can't disclose our employees' contributions. It's like, well, of course you can't. No one asked you to. But right. if you're matching, that's shareholder money. And they had a very interesting argument. They said, well, you know, I mean, despite the fact that they talk about how, I mean, they're proud of their charitable contribution matching program uh, and its great impact on the community. Apparently, it's very, very tiny. So it's immaterial. So they're extremely generous. But it's so tiny as to not be material, so they're all they're substantially doing it. So if they don't disclose this important program, they're <laughs> leaving out something that is so small it doesn't need to be. Uh, and then so I worked the math on this a little bit. And what what drug companies do is drug companies give away drugs in Africa and in right. other parts of the third world, and so they can list that value of those drugs as a charitable contribution. So by including that in their charitable contribution, they can blow up the denominator and then say, you know, that their employee matching program is, I forget the numbers, but I think it's it's only 3% of our total giving. It's like, well, wait a minute. When you take out the in-kind contributions and and the gifting of drugs, which you would not have been able to sell anyway in Africa because they can't afford them, then you're more like 18, 19%. That sounds substantial. But the SEC you know, agreed with them. So we'll have to figure out another way to get at that. Um, and uh, so th- that, that that's a category. And it's, it's so strange to me that those people who say they want disclosure don't want disclosure here. Or I guess you're saying they don't want it anymore. So b- way back when, when someone might have been giving money to the American Enterprise Institute, they wanted disclosure. Now that right. they're giving money to Planned Parenthood or maybe Black Lives Matter or Take Back the Block or pro-riot organizations, Right. Especially a weird thing for retailers to be doing. Yes. (laughs) Lululemon giving money to Black Lives Matter and take back the block, which wants to defund the police. Um, uh, But okay, Um, So that's another inconsistency. I don't really know what the right answer is. I'm I'm not sure if I want all the disclosure or if I want less. I just want consistency. Right. That's right. I I just... if if and if a company is going to disclose, it ought to disclose everything. Yes. The idea that it makes a big fuss about disclosing charitable contributions, um, or it says it has to take certain political positions and then wants to be completely stum about it. Either you have to take this position because it's getting through to your clients and stakeholders. Or you don't need to take this position at all. But the idea that you have to take it and you have to spend the money, but then you can't tell anybody about it. And that's supposed to have an effect on your, your reputation. Makes no sense. You, it, it can't be brand building and secret at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> now, it might be buying off the opposition of an interest group, right? It, it might be trying to make your teenage daughter love you again, despite being a capitalist. I mean, it might be lots of things. Uh, it might be legacy. I don't know. It might, might even actually be personal conviction. Maybe you think that police should be defunded. Uh, yeah. You know, again, a weird position if you're a retailer. Uh, but uh, maybe you really believe that. Okay, well, then do it with your own money. But it can't be brand building and also non-disclosed. Um, right. So. Right. Okay, so that's charitable contribution. Have we hit all the major categories? I want to make sure I'm not missing. Oh, China. That's right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. We have a series of proposals. Asking companies to uh, evaluate all sorts of things, whether um, whether they're applying the same environmental rules here as they are in China, whether they're living up to their the human rights commitments that they're that they're supporting here, whether they're supporting them 
uh, on the Chinese mainland, whether, uh, and I don't think, I'm not sure, I can't remember if these got through, but I know that we as a group tried some of these, asking content companies, now, Disney, for instance, Disney, if it's so vital to you that you send the socially correct message, that you keep screwing up these shows and, and nobody wants to come in, in the States to your show, why is it that in China, where the human rights record is much worse, it's okay to take out all those references, mm. right? So you have to have the trans kid in the American version of the right. movie. But not in the but Chinese version. take it out for China. Right. You take out any references at all to gay in the, in the Arab world. Yes. And yet those are the people most in need of that message by your own theory. So another, it's another of these on the horns. But, by my own theory, too. I don't want them throwing gay people off of the tops of buildings. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, does that make me a liberal? I, I stop. Or what do they do? They throw them off buildings or they collapse walls on them. I don't want them to do that. So let's no, say, you know, so it's, it's okay. Let's have a Disney character, a humanized gay person. That's fine. But again, inconsistent. Um, right. I guess yeah. either their job is to preach or their job is to give audiences what they want. But it can't be true right. at the same time that it's fiduciarily good to preach in the United States and places where the problems are much, much worse to to uh, uh, go along with, with what either the government or the culture will. Got it. Now, I have a confession to make about the China proposals, okay? Uh, maybe I'll whisper it. I don't want all our friends to know. When when someone does a, Ch- a China proposal that looks at the risk of doing business, the business risk, of doing business in China, our recommendation is a yes vote on that. Yep. But when somebody um, proposes something that is based, uh, that, that is basically kind of a divest from China based on human rights record or geopolitical rivalry with the United States, I don't recommend a yes vote on that. Yep. Because it it's not fiduciary anymore. We have a State Department. Right. I mean, I hate what China is doing in terms of of human rights records. Um, but what I see is if we start opening up that that door, then we're not doing business with a whole bunch of countries because the world is actually a pretty rotten place. Yes. And there's all, all sorts of rotten people doing rotten things to one another. And we would just, you know, just be us and, you know, a few other countries. So when someone makes a business case for it, yeah. Yep. But when someone makes a political case, I don't really feel like from a fiduciary standpoint, I'm not judging anybody else's decisions, but I don't feel like from a fiduciary standpoint that we can vote on, that we can support, yeah. recommend a well, support. I think, I think one of the interesting things about this, you know, it's a, in the left's view, it's ESG and anti-ESG and ESG is all good things and anti-ESG is evil. But really what it is, is politics and neutrality. Yes. What we on the center right want is by and large not to get companies to say oppose abortion or whatever social policy. We just want them to get out of it and restrict their political activities to trying to keep their taxes low and shareholder profits high. Whereas the left has stated that the future is theirs. And so they have to convince companies to get with the the future as they define it. Otherwise, they're going to be bankrupt. Right. So we try not to be directive. Something occurs to me that, you know, there are obviously policies that say get out of fossil fuels. Right. And I, we recommend a no vote on those. But yep. I actually saw a proposal that said stay in fossil fuels. It didn't say stay in fossil fuels if it's a good idea. It didn't say stay if it's it just said fossil fuels are important. They're important. This is a Canadian company. Fossil fuels yep. are important to the Canadian national interest. You know, the proposal was for the company to continue to use fossil fuels. Uh, well, I'm sorry. I mean, if someone invents an antimatter machine next year uh, <laughs> and it's better than fossil fuels, I don't want it part of the corporate charter that they have to, you know, so, but the right, the right is very seldom politically directive. Right. The left is almost always politically directive. So I, it, I, I end up recommending yes votes on most conservative proposals and no votes on most liberal proposals, not out of conservatism, but out of neutrality. Because the conservative proposals tend to be politically depoliticization proposals. Yeah. Once in a while, a proposal will try to push a company right, but generally, it's just trying to get politics out. Yeah. Well, and, and your your example is the perfect one. I don't think anybody on the right. Well, I mean, I live in, and you're close to West Virginia, so maybe there's some coal miners who want people just to stick to coal. 
But I think most of us want companies to make, nobody had that have an ESG movement to move from horsepower to petroleum power at the, at the turn of the last century. They right. did it when it was economically feasible and, and, uh, and technologically feasible. We don't need any of this. And nobody, no, no, no more non-de minimis group of people is pro-petroleum for the sake of petroleum. What we're pro is affordable and technologically feasible energy when it becomes feasible. That's all. Yeah, that's it. Okay, Scott Shepard, any other uh, highlights you want to hit from uh, this season, this uh, well, shareholder season? I, so. uh, off the top of my head, I just think that I want to leave you with the thought that that we've got the uh, we've got the, the the business media's attention, and we've got an increasing amount of respect. We've got so we certainly got the As You So Coalition's fury, which I think is is fairly good. And there's going to be a lot more attention on the SEC and its review process in this coming year. So I'm I'm really hopeful that we'll have more proposals on our side. We'll have better, and we'll, we're going to have better uh, responses from corporations because as corporations get sued and lose because of equity-based discrimination, and they get sued and lose because of uh, non-fiduciary decisions, they're going to start listening to us more. I think so. Um, I think the law says it. I think the shareholders say it. And no matter what whatever statements they sign about stakeholder capitalism in law, they answer to shareholders as it should be. All right, Scott Shepard from the Free Enterprise Project. Thanks so much for being with us on Meeting of Minds. Thank you so much, Jerry. Keep up the good work. 